First of all, I'm going to talk about something that most people don't really consider when they're thinking about astronomy, and that's observing at different wavelengths of light rather than just the optical wavelengths, which you see with our eyes and what you see in telescopes that we have on the roof here. And in particular, I'm going to talk about radio astronomy. Now, it's interesting to note that some of the biggest discoveries in astronomy, and ones that have won Nobel Prizes over the last century, have come from radio astronomy. As Chris mentioned, the universe started with the cosmic microwave background. That's the first radiation we can see. And that, we pick that up, we detect that at radio wavelengths. So around when we listen to your radio at home, that's sort of the wavelength talking about, also TV. Again, and Jocelyn's just left, but um, pulsars, who's heard of pulsars? So pulsars were discovered by radio telescopes as well, and these are very compact, very massive stars spinning around, and they're actually the best clocks we have in the universe. They, they spin around and they emit a pulse at every rotation, and they keep very good time, better than anything we have on Earth. And so where is this going? So, and what do we observe in the radio wavelengths? Well, I'm going to talk about something that we're looking ahead to the future, which is called the Square Kilometre Array. <coughs> but before I get there, I'm going to talk about why radio telescopes work and what they do. So this is a, um, a description of, or a figure showing the electromagnetic spectrum. So these are all um, things you've heard of, but possibly don't know um, what they actually mean physically. So at the very most energetic end, or shortest wavelengths, we have something called gamma rays, which are very bad for you, and luckily we don't get them through the atmosphere, the atmosphere cuts them all out, but they'd fry us if um, they got through the atmosphere, so we don't, probably don't want to look at them too hard. X-rays, you all know about X-rays, they X-ray your bones, and the reason why the X-ray bones send an X-ray pulse through your hand, for instance, the bones stop the X-rays, but they go through the skin. So we also observe X-rays from the universe, and X-rays actually trace very energetic phenomena in the universe, like black holes. We have ultraviolet. Some ultraviolet gets through our atmosphere and gives us a tan. The ultraviolet in the universe allows us to look at the youngest stars in the universe, which are very blue, and the blue end of the optical is towards the ultraviolet. And then we have the optical, which I'm not going to say much about because everyone knows about it, then we move into the infrared, where we take heat radiation, things that are warm. Um, so if you look in the thermal imager um, in the um, scientific cafe, that's what it's picking up, picking up heat radiation. And then further on, we have microwaves and we have the radio. And these you can sort of group together into um, all radio, because the technology we use to detect these wavelengths of light is actually very similar. So you're all used to looking at pictures like this of the universe. And this is from the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, a similar picture to what Chris showed, showing all the galaxies and a few stars in this very small patch of sky. And we get information about, from the colours of these galaxies about what processes are occurring in them. So old red elliptical galaxies like here <coughs> are possibly very massive, um, relatively distant and very red because they have a lot of old stars. The blue ones are more spiral or irregular looking. They have a lot of star formation ongoing in them, so they're very blue. But what do we get in the radio? Well, the good thing about radio waves is, as you know, 
when you're picking up radio signals at home, they, radio waves get through anything. They get through brick walls, otherwise you wouldn't be able to receive radio one or anything. So that, that, it, that happens in the universe as well. The radio waves have man managed to get through all this dust in the universe, which cuts out optical radiation. So we have a very clear view of what's out there. We also see some very interesting objects. On the left here is something called Cygnus A. And the sprite dot in the middle there that you can see is actually the light from an accreting black hole, very close into a black hole where you have an accretion disk and you have a very intense amount of radiation coming out due to the energetic processes that are going on around that black hole. And you also have these big things here, which are called radio lobes and jets. You, know, you can just about see a jet coming out here. And the scale of these is quite phenomenal. So if I told you that the actual galaxy that this object lives in, so this is an external to our own galaxy, it's in a distant galaxy, and its galaxy that it lives in is about just bits bigger than the size of that white dot there. So these jets are flying out all the way into the distant regions of the universe, away from the galaxy. They're huge. And this is what sort of thing we pick up at radio wavelengths. Importantly, on the right-hand side here is an optical image of a nearby um, galaxy. And on the right-hand side is what it looks like at a certain frequency in the radio. And all this um, structure here is due to hydrogen gas. So hydrogen is a building block of all the material that we see in the universe. So it's very important to trace all this gas and it emits at radio wavelengths, and we're, allowed to, we're able to do that. And you can see, you see a lot more going on in the radio than you do in the optical. So here's a slightly prettier picture of a local galaxy. You can see all this, this is um, a radio image in the blue, overlaid on an optical image taken with a normal optical telescope. And all these stars and galaxies in the background are detecting the optical, but you see in the radio this diffuse gas emission, which is telling you where all the gas that eventually will go on to form all the stars in these spiral arms as it collapses and cools. And here's a rogues gallery of black holes in the universe. So all of these objects have supermassive black holes in the center of them that you can see with the bright dots here and over here and up there, and up there. And they're all sending out these huge jets of plasma, so made up of protons and electrons, and positive electrons, positrons, in these jets. And they emit at these radio wavelengths. So you see massive structures and quite impressive structures. So this is what I do, though. Uh, I don't get to look at those pretty images so much. I have a optical image here overlaid with the usual view we see of radio emission, which are these pretty boring, just contour maps of where the emission is. But there's actually a lot of information here. We can associate things like this. This is actually very similar to those previous pictures I showed you, just put in, in a slightly blander way. There's an increasing black hole in this galaxy here that's giving you this radio emission around it. And some of the other galaxies you see there, like here and here, are actually star-forming galaxies. 
They're the ones we pick up at very blue wavelengths in the optical, but we also pick up radio emission from them, which is very important because star formation also goes hand in hand with lots of dust. So when we have star formation in a galaxy, we miss a lot of the light. Around 50% of the light in the universe is obscured by dust. And we can only pick it up at longer wavelengths, either at very long infrared wavelengths, for what we call the far infrared. And many of you have probably heard of a satellite called Herschel, which has just come to the end of its life, which has been looking at the universe in the far infrared. But the radio also gives us that opportunity to look at all the obscured galaxies in the universe. So, so why do telescopes look like this? So this is very similar to what we have at Jodrell Bank in, near Manchester. Um, it's a big dishes with receivers at the top here, and the light hits the dish and gets focused onto the receiver here. Very similar to an optical telescope. It's just that the material they're made of is slightly different. If you think of, if you've got a satellite dish at home, that's essentially what they're doing. They're just picking up satellite um, communications. It's that wavelength, so you, you need similar kind of technology. <coughs> And we have things like Arecibo, which is a 300-metre diameter dish sitting in um, uh, Central America. And you might actually recognise this. It was actually in a Bond film um, where James Bond slid down this. Um, but why build something that big? Well, the bigger you make something, the clearer view of the universe you have. You have the finer resolution. And you'll be able to pick out um, smaller and smaller structures the bigger the telescope you have. This is the biggest single-dish telescope there is on Earth. And there's actually, obviously, mechanical issues of building something this big. And you need a big ditch to put it in, for instance. Otherwise, you can't support such a weighty thing. So what else can you do? So those of you who have seen Contact with Jodie Foster, this is a lot of it where it was filmed, called The Very Large Array, which is in New Mexico. And this is 27 single dishes, but they work together. And they work together because we can combine the information from over there with the information over here. And we can actually emulate a dish that's the size of all of that. And when I tell you that's around um, 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers in size, that gives you an idea of the sort of dish we're emulating. By, doing, by connecting these dishes off um, individually. So you don't have to stop on a single telescope. You can actually do this from other sides of the Earth. If you have a telescope over here and one over here, as long as they can both see the same patch of sky, you can combine the signals received here with the signal over here and basically combine the data and you emulating a telescope the size of the Earth. So that gives you very fine structure that you're looking at because you've got this huge capability. The downside is your sensitivity is only as much as the area of these two dishes. You don't get the sensitivity of something that size. You just pick out, get the, the fine resolution of something that size. And you just combine, you just have to know the exact position of where these are. So you know some a light from a distant object, you know when it gets here, and how much longer it takes to get to there. And then you can combine them. That's all the information you need to know. So we have instruments like this. We have our own um, emailing network in the UK, which combines dishes from around the UK to get this fine structure. And you may have noticed it's not 
the UK is not generally very good for observing, but uh, it's actually very good in the radio because it doesn't care if clouds are in the way. The radio waves just come through all the clouds. So that's why we can actually build and work a world-beating telescope in the UK in the radio waves. But like I said, you don't have to stop in one country. You can spread out across Europe. You can buy signals from all these dishes and get a much bigger telescope. But that's where we are now. But over the next few years, things are going to change slightly. And the reason for that is we're moving away from these dishes and doing something slightly different. And if you think of what, how your radio works at home, you don't have to have a satellite dish. You can, you can just have, have an aerial. You have an aerial on your car, and it receives the radio. You can do the same from radio waves from space. You don't need a dish. You just need an aerial. Now, an aerial is not very big. You don't get that much sensitivity. But what if you had lots of aerials? So these are lots of aerials sitting on the ground um, in a place called Effelsberg in Germany. I'll just concentrate on this bit now. These are just single aerials, but they're receiving data or radio waves from all over the sky. They're not pointing at any particular place. They're gathering the information from everywhere because they don't have any direction. They're not pointing anywhere. Radio waves are coming over from here, here, here. So they're seeing all the sky in one go. The similar technology under these, slightly different, but these are covers to protect them, so you don't actually see. These are actually operating at two different frequencies. And this is something called LOFAR, which is the Low Frequency Array. And it's spread across Europe, and we have a station in the UK at a place called Chilbolton near Winchester, and this is the UK's LOFAR station. And we can connect these up in much the same way all across Europe. And we can make pretty dull images of distant objects. So this is just a blob, not very interesting. This is actually um, an object. It's actually an accrete, one of these accreting black holes in the distant universe. But it's got very poor resolution. It's actually just taken with the low fast stations that are just within the Netherlands, just within Holland. So not very big country, not big telescope. However, if we then take that observation and link in the stations in the UK and in Germany and in Sweden, then we see something else. And this is just highlighting what this gain in resolution actually tells you. This may not seem very interesting. It's just two other blobs, just a bit smaller. Um, but what this actually is, is a binary black hole system. There's two supermassive black holes rotating around each other. And when I say supermassive, they're about a billion times the mass of the sun and they're about the size of our solar system. So big numbers, big scales, but that sort of thing we can look at. But that's not the only thing. Because these are things are looking at all over the sky at one go, our only problem is how big can we build a computer to process all the data? If we had an infinitely large computer, we could image the whole sky the whole hemisphere in one go, and forever. For the next 10 years, we'd have the deepest, widest map of the universe ever made. LOFAR actually has one of the top 10 fastest supercomputers in the world processing its data. Processing its data. And what that means is we can look at 250 pieces of the sky in one go. 
So while we're conducting, say, a galaxy survey over here, looking at the, trying to do a survey of these star-forming galaxies or accreting black holes, over here we can look at a pulsar, monitor a pulsar at the same time. And as you can look in all these different directions all at the same time, your ability to conduct lots of different science increases massively. And the only limitation is your supercomputer that you have in your basement. Or maybe not in your basement. And the, we are coming to a point now in radio astronomy where we're not limited by receivers or dishes, we're limited by computers. And this is only going to get worse. Because LOFAR is the first in a new generation of these telescopes where we, it's what we call a software telescope. But this is leading up to something called the Square Kilometre Array. And the description's in the name. It's, it's a telescope with a square kilometre of collecting area. And it looks like this. It's not a single telescope. It has three different technologies operating at different radio frequencies. Here, which is around the FM band, we get radio 1 and radio 2, etc. Here, at high frequency, we use dishes. And here, we use something slightly different called aperture arrays, which is essentially these aerials, but a lot of them. So higher frequency means shorter wavelengths. It means you need shorter aerials to receive the data. So to get the same amount of collecting area at shorter wavelengths, you need way more aerials. So you need a lot of aerials in here to do this. So the SKA is going to is currently in the design phase, and we're building a number of precursor telescopes, LOFAR being one of them, but another two are in Australia and South Africa, to test out technology as we move towards this ridiculously large machine, which is going to span a continent. It's going to span Africa, and it's going to span Australia at two frequencies to get that massive resolution, massive increase in resolution. But with a machine this big, what are we going to learn? So these are the key science cases for the Square Kilometre Array. Many of you may be heard of dark energy and dark matter. This is one of the key aspects of the SK. It's going to try and look for evidence and how dark energy and dark matter evolve in the universe from the Big Bang until the present day. It's going to test general relativity. It's, so Einstein's general relativity seems to work on all scales that we can probe. We haven't been able to throw it away yet. But the goal of science is to disprove theories. It's not to prove them right. It's to prove them wrong so we can move on. No one's been able to pr disprove general relativity yet. But it is one of the goals we're going to try and do with SKA. One of the unique angles of radio astronomy is we also be able to probe magnetic fields in the universe. Now, this is a long-standing issue. We, have we, we know there are magnetic fields around galaxies on very large scales, but we haven't got a clue how they got there. There's no reason why the magnetic field should be there. And also, going on from the end of Chris's talk, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is done at the radio wavelengths. That's why Jodie Foster was in the VLA in contact. Because what you're trying to pick up is TV from other planets. That's the only way you can find intelligent life. And there's a very important difference between life and intelligent life. And one of the only ways you can find intelligent life is look for the kind of technology that we have on Earth. And that's radar, and that's TVs, 
and various military <laughs> equipment. But we can also probe what Chris mentioned, the Dark Ages, that period in the universe where the first objects started forming and anything else we haven't thought of yet. So I'm actually going to get out of my talk a moment and show you a movie. I'm not going to show you a movie. I'm not going to show you a movie. Not my fault. <laughs> okay, so I'll stop there. If anyone wants to see the movie after, just come and grab me in one of the rooms. Okay, thank you.